You're listening to a message from Victory Christian Center in Farmer City, Illinois. For more information on Victory, please contact us at vccfarmercity.org. All right. Well, let's let's get on with the series we've been we've been studying. If you brought your Bible, right? okay. Let me try this again. Welcome. Good morning to church. <laughs> If you brought your Bible open to Ephesians chapter 4, we'll look at our core text for this series. We have been talking about growing up spiritually, spiritual development. And we've been looking at the stages of natural development and looking at characteristics that we can then apply to our own spiritual development because the comparison's a good one. And many of those things are complete. They do line up, and we need to be mindful of them. And so we can look back even at our own childhood and our own younger days in the natural to help us then recognize things, or we can look at others, but there are things we can learn. And so last week we were looking at the elementary age, kind of the grade school age. Uh, this morning we're moving on to the youth. We're going to look at some, dare I say, teenage characteristics and I'll say this, we're talking in generalities. You know, we're looking at some general principles that, that may hit us, you know, square on the head when we were teens or it might miss us. Because you know as well as I do, not everyone's the same. On one hand, we are all exactly the same. On the other hand, we are all uniquely different at the exact same time. I can say that about teenagers. I have three of them at the moment. And on one hand, they are 100% identical. And then on the other hand, they are three completely different and unique individuals that sometimes have nothing in common. And so in a message like this, I'm hitting generalities. And I might hit close, I might not, but we can learn from the principles. And that's really what we're trying to do. And so let's let's read our core text first. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 says, And he himself gave some to be apostles and some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying, the building up of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, a mature man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But, or rather, here's where we want to land, speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. So we're talking about growing up in all things. So this morning, I, I, I'm kind of looking for examples of teenagers or young men in the Bible. Um, it's not a hard, fast rule, but often if you see the word young when it talks about a young man or a young woman, usually that means anywhere from teenager to young adult. It, it's usually in there somewhere. Can I maybe say anywhere from teenagers to 30? Um, as I understand it, in the Jewish culture you, culture, you cross a line at 30 and you enter into a new level of respect in the society. Or And I'm, I'm not an authority on that, but I've been taught, taught that. So probably in that range somewhere is what the young men would be. So I'm looking for some examples of young men and young women in the Bible. And I found a couple that I think we can learn some things from. I'm going to start in Acts chapter 20. Um, this is an interesting account. Um, a picture in the early church, and we're looking at the Apostle Paul. Acts chapter 20, verse 7. Now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. Now, I don't know if they started in the morning, if this was a Sunday morning church service and then they broke bread and he just kept going, knowing I got to leave tomorrow, so I better just give you all I got now. And so just buckle up because I'm going till midnight. I've been accused, no, I've not often been accused of being long-winded, but I've never preached till midnight. All right. Well, verse 8. There were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered together, and in a window sat a certain young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep. 
he was overcome by sleep. And as Paul continued speaking, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. He was sitting in the window, fell asleep, fell out the window, fell three stories. Mine goes weird places sometimes. I'm thinking, well, we know they at least had three-story buildings in that day, right? Because he's fell from a third story. That's pretty clear. And then my mind wonders, while I'm trying to preach, did they have fire trucks that could reach that high? Does your mind ask you weird questions sometimes? There's no spiritual benefit to that. You can ignore that. Thank you, mind. So anyway, he falls asleep. Now, I can say, and I won't name names, but I've had people fall asleep while I preach, both in here and in the youth room, believe it or not. I have never had anyone die while I preached. So I guess I'm one up on Paul in that respect. On the other hand, Paul turns around and raises him from the dead, and I've not done that either. Because I've never had to. Yeah, that's it. No, so I don't know. Verse 10, but Paul went down, fell on him, and embracing him said, do not trouble yourselves for his life is in him. Now when he had come up, had broken bread and eaten, So apparently they did decide, well, it's midnight. Maybe we should pause for a moment. Let's get something to eat. So they stopped the church service at midnight, you know, raised Eutychus from the dead. And, uh, well, let's go get something to eat. So they get the potluck back out because they broke bread earlier in the day. And so they decide to eat some more food, make sure everybody's awake again, right? So it says then, and had broken bread and eaten and talked a long while even till daybreak. Then he departed, and they brought the young man in alive, and they were not a little comforted. So he didn't stop at midnight. He stopped and, you know, I'll raise Eutychus from the dead, and then, let's hey, let's get something to eat. And then they kept going, and he preached till the sun came up. Again, I have never preached that long. We have never had an all-night service. Although I will say, if we ever did, it'd be scriptural. I have a Bible example for it. Can't say, Pastor, that's unscriptural to go that long. No, no, it's not. What I always say is, if God wants to go that long, we'll go with him. But we're not going to go that long just because I got a lot to say. No, we're not doing that. But now, if God wants to move somewhere, then he's moving. It'll be all right. And you can't fall out of our windows, and you don't have that far to fall if you could. So... We're okay. But that just amazes me, though. He preached till midnight, raised Jesus from the dead. Let's have a potluck dinner, and I'm going to keep going. He preached till morning. I love I love that. I got something. That's why I bring us up here. Give me a second. All right. Here's what I want to say. Eutychus, and I'm not picking on the guy, but Eutychus, I'm looking for examples, right? Had trouble staying awake. I do wonder if we did have a late night service and we went a while, would we be able to stay awake? What if God was moving and there was something going on? Do we have enough self-control and enough self-discipline to stay awake? You know, I, I got thinking about this, um, and it, it's the exact opposite. It, it's my point for the message, and it's the exact opposite of what we just read. It seems to me that it's the younger ones that do better at staying up late. So I don't know why it was Eutychus that fell asleep. That completely messes up my story. But I know when I was younger, when I was a teen, man, I could stay up as late as anyone. We could pull that all-nighter. It was mornings I didn't like. And uh, that does seem a little more consistent with teenagers. And man, I'll stay up late, no problem. It's getting up in the morning that, that's more of a challenge. In my younger years as an adult, I even I think I spent more time working the night shift than I did work in daytime. I had several jobs that way. I got to thinking, I worked the night shift. Uh, I worked a 40-hour-a-week night shift job all the way through Bible school. That's how I paid the bills, and that's how I paid for Bible school. I had no problem working nights. Um, what became issue more for me, though, 
was as I'm walking with the Lord and as I'm reading the Bible and I begin to see more and more things in there that talked about when you first get up and in the early morning and Jesus got up before the sun and went to pray and all the, and I can begin seeing these things and I, I kind of came to a crossroad that, you know, cause if you'd asked me when I was a young man, I'd have told you I'm a night person. I hate mornings. I am a night person. I don't know if you remember, I, I said stuff like that. Some of you knew me at that age, you know, I don't know if I ever said that to you or not, but I said stuff like that. But I did come to a point where I kind of had to answer the question, but what if God needs me in the morning? What do I do then? Sorry, God, can't help you. I'm a night person. Hey, if you need me in the evening, let me know. But I uh, can't do much for you in the morning. I hate mornings. Well, that's not going to get you very far in your walk with God. So whatever time of day you're more awake or whatever time of day is harder for you, what if God needs you in the less convenient time? Can we do that? Do we have enough self-control, enough self-discipline to be able to look at God and say, yes, sir, I'm willing to step out of my norm, out of my comfort zone maybe, and do this for you because you're asking me to. So I've had to kind of retrain myself, and I quit saying I'm a night person. This was years ago. I, I quit saying, nope, nope. If, if asked, I would say, I'm an anytime person. Anytime God needs me, I'm available, right? Didn't feel like that when I started saying it. <laughs> I've worked into that. And like I said last week, now I love mornings. I love getting up in the morning, especially if I just spend time with him. If I can do it, I do it more times than not before the sun comes up. There is something to be said about that. Now, I'm not telling you to go do that. That's between you and the Lord. I'm not making a rule out of my lifestyle. That's between you and God. But you read the Bible and see what he would say to you. But I will say this to you. Be an anytime person. Have that kind of heart and attitude before the Lord. Can you be an anytime person? So how that fits you, because I don't know. He had the, maybe he should have been an older person. I don't know. Anyway, let's keep going though. Um, Ephesians 5.14 says this, Therefore he says, Awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and he will give you light. Okay, so no, I'm not making a connection between Eutychus and what Paul's saying here, saying, see, Eutychus should have woken up. Paul said, awake from sleep. No, no, I'm not making that leap. That, that, that's silly. But I do want to look at this first for a minute, because that's written to all of us. He says, awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. Now, what's he talking about? At a face value, most of the people in the world today are either dead or asleep. Now, I'm not talking about physical uh, Paul did not write this verse half to the world and half to cemeteries. Uh, he's not talking about physical. He's talking about spiritual. Half of the world today, not half the world today, most of the world today is either spiritually dead, meaning what? They're not saved. They need to be born again. They need spiritual life on the inside of them. So there's that portion. But sadly, much of the church in the earth today is spiritually asleep. Now, they're not dead. They are alive on the inside. But they're asleep. They're unaware of what's going on around them. Loosely, I could say, Eutychus was unaware of the service that was happening around him. Okay, that's about as close as I'll get to tying Eutychus into that. But how many Christians are completely unaware of what God's trying to say to them, of what God is doing in the earth today, of what He is wanting to accomplish? They're unaware of what His will is in their life or in the earth in, in general. Just everything that's going on. Let's read the rest of it. He says, in, back in 14, therefore he says, awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So I often just grab verse 17 and run with it, which you're really not supposed to do, especially a verse that starts with the word therefore. That's dangerous. But I, I often grab that verse 
because there's this idea in a lot of the church today, I'm talking big picture, that the will of God is just some unknowable thing. That God's just doing what God's doing, and we can't really know what His will is, you know. I mean, His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And yeah, Scripture doesn't teach that. Now, are His ways higher? Yes. Are His thoughts higher? Yes. Does that mean we can't know them? Oh, no. In fact, even that passage where in Isaiah, around chapter 55, in that same passage, he says, I sent you my word. What? We need to learn his ways. We need to come up higher, think his thoughts. That's kind of what this whole series is about. The more we grow and develop spiritually, the more we begin to think the way he thinks and walk in the ways that he walks. That's what this is all about. We're supposed to know. In the context, when he says, understand what the will of the Lord is, the context, the verses we just read, he's saying, wake up. If you wake up and seek him, Christ will give you light. And what's one thing that light's going to show you? Uh, God's will. You're going to see what his will is in whatever situation you're walking through or in the world around us or in the various areas that we seek him because we need to know, Lord, what's your will in this? for one thing, so that we can then pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done. He needs you to ask. But we need to ask him what the will is, then we can ask him for his will to be done. Are you with me? We're supposed to know. So anyway, we need to be alive. We need to be awake. We need to be alert in the day we live in. And a lot of that has to do with our spiritual development. So there's one. Let me kind of bring in another aspect here. I'm going to go to Titus, um, chapter 2, verse 6. Uh, it says, exhort the young men to be sober-minded. I'm going to try and expand on that a little bit. Other translations, the NIV says, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. Uh, the Message Bible says, guide the young men to live disciplined lives. Amplified says, urge the younger men to be self-restrained. So if you kind of paint the big picture, he's talking about discipline and being self-disciplined. But the King James specifically says um, to be sober-minded. And so kind of what I want to look at is a discipline in our mind, training our mind to be self-disciplined. Now, we've already seen, uh, last week we talked about how children are not self-disciplined. And so we've kind of already broached this topic. Children, sometimes teenagers or youth that we're talking about today, um, dare I say, sometimes adults have short attention spans. Have you noticed this? Now, when you're real young, it's probably a developmental thing. I don't know. I'm not going to get off on that. But we need to train our minds to focus and to have better attention spans. Now, I can honestly say that I've never really had anybody complain. I've, I've been teased, but I've never had anybody complain that our church services are too long and that preacher is just too windy. And no, I've not really had that, so i, I got nothing to stand on there. I have had some of you complain if I go too short. Go figure. But there are other churches where that preacher has a time limit set by his congregation of about 15, 20 minutes. I heard a story of a preacher that in his congregation, if he went longer than 15 minutes, he had a gentleman in his church that once he crossed 15 his left hand went up, and he started doing this. And he didn't stop till the preacher quit. I've never had that. You have never done that, praise God. But I sit back and I think, wow, is that really the, the length of your attention span? What if God's trying to say something? You know, I, I, I don't want to get off on that, but we need to develop focus when we're... Let me turn it to our devotional time. How many times have you sat down to read your Bible and you're reading through your Bible and your eyes are going through the words and maybe your mouth's even kind of half keeping, keeping up and your mind goes to TV or your mind goes to food or your mind goes to something else and all of a sudden you realize, I've just read half a page and I don't have a clue what I just read. I mean, my eyes looked at the words, but my mind was somewhere else. Well, that's what I'm talking about a self-discipline in our mind that we focus. 
And so what do you do? You take your mind, you say, get back here. You need to be here. I talk to my mind like a kid sometimes. There, there's a, I don't have it uh, for to put on the screen, but there's a verse in Psalms that I speak to myself often. So I'll, I'll just quote it to you. It says, uh, um, surely I have calmed and quieted my soul. Talking about my mind, my will, my emotions, my imagination. Like a weaned child with his mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. That's why I say I, I, I treat my mind like a child sometimes. I said, no, no, no. We're not doing that right now. How many times have you sat down to pray and maybe you're trying to pray about something and same thing. Your mind says, you know, my TV show is about to start. We're not going to miss that, are we? And you're thinking, we're praying. I'm trying to pray about something right now. Or here's one. I'm trying to pray about something. My mind starts going, I'm hungry. You know, there's some cheesecake in the refrigerator. I bet we would pray a lot more effectively if we had a little cheesecake first. Does your mind do that? Maybe not cheesecake, fill in the blank, but or any number, any number of things. What do we need? We need to train our mind. We need to implement self-discipline to focus on what we're doing in the moment. Will there'll be time to eat later? There'll be time to watch TV later. So much of today is on demand anyway. Who cares what time it is? We'll do that later. Well, I need focus. And so we train ourselves when you go to church, when you read your Bible, when you pray, uh, when you worship. You know, I got to thinking about this. You might think, because Sunday morning is not the only time we worship. That should be a daily experience. And you don't have to have music, but that's one way to worship the Lord. And you might think that it's easier for the musicians to worship on their own than those who have no musical talent, right? I'm here to tell you, in my opinion, it's the exact opposite. From my experience, here's what happens. Maybe that's what I'm trying to do. Maybe it's in the morning and I'm wanting to worship and I just feel like singing. And so I'll get out some worship music and I'll put in my headphones and hope nobody's around because I'm going to sing out loud and all you're going to hear is me and nothing because it's in my headphones. But anyway, so I put in some music and I'm, I got my mind on him, and I'm just worshiping, and all of a sudden my mind says, ooh, I like that guitar lick. Or, did you hear that keyboard sound? Or, oh, that was a neat drum beat he laid down. How did he do that? And I start thinking, how do you get that tone? Oh, that, oh, I bet we could do that. Well, we'll talk about that. And, and, and all of a sudden I realize my mind's not on him. I'm not worshiping anymore. I'm now thinking about mechanics of worship at best. I'm not worshiping. My mind turned left and off I went. And so I don't, maybe that's not harder, but maybe that's just another distraction. But I'm trying to worship. I have to tell my mind. We'll think about that later. I'm worshiping right now. And I, I keep my focus and my attention on him. All right. I'll say this. Um, if you're not into what you're doing, if you're not really thinking about Him and you're just going through motions of worship and yelling, love you, Lord, if you're not into it, don't assume He's getting much out of it either. Think of it in the natural. What, what if I went up and I just, I'm thinking, maybe, maybe, maybe Jake, and I'm thinking, Jake, you're such a great guy. I really love you. I love what you do for me. I'm so glad to have you in my life. Is he going to get much out of that? No. He's probably going to think, man, you're weird. You know, I don't know. Now, I don't think God thinks that, but it's no different. If we're not into it, he's probably not into it either. You know? So train our mind. This is what we're doing right now. And open up your heart and be real with him. But we focus. So... Anyway, there's one of my points this morning. Let's go to another one. Let's go over to Luke chapter 15. I'm going to look in verse 11. What I'm looking at for a moment is the parable of the prodigal son. So I'm going to, I'm going to guess many of you are probably already familiar. We're not going to read the whole parable. I'm just going to bring it up and see if I can glean a point out of here. Um, Luke 15 verse 11. 
Then he said, a certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. So what I'll point out here as a character of a young man is impatience. Sometimes when you're younger, you tend to be more impatient. We, we could have gone to the really the young kids, all kinds of stories like, are we there yet? Okay, we, you know, we could have had fun with that. But even still, as we grow older, that's still a deal. And we do talk about patience a lot around here. But I'm thinking of my, my youth. And uh, this may not, again, this won't apply to everybody. But I know when I was a youth, let's say about 14. What's on the mind typically of a 14-year-old boy? What's he looking forward to? Driver's license. And they start a countdown. I got about two more years. And then at 15, one more year. And then driver's ed starts and all this, this big, and I was kind of like that. Now, girls aren't always like that. At least mine have been kind of hit and miss, you know. And I've seen boys have been hit and miss. So it's not a gender thing, you know. But I was like that. But if you tried to tell me at 14, ah, it'll be here before you know it. Next thing you know, you're going to have a driver's license. It'll be like nothing. Now, as an adult, yeah, that passage of time might seem pretty quick. As a parent, might seem too quick. <laughs> as a 14-year-old boy, that could not come quick enough. What are you talking about here any moment? That's two years away. Are you kidding me? It's taking forever. <laughs> well, what I'll say is this. Impatience is a problem for a Christian. Now, I don't know necessarily that it'll hinder your faith, although it can. But Hebrews tells us that by faith and patience, we obtain the promises of God. We live in a culture that is, I don't know what else to call us, but a, a fast food society. We want everything now. We want it quick. We want our food ready. We don't want to wait for it. Uh, with the whole drive through mentality. Um, boy, I'm, I want to buy it online and it better be here tomorrow. I mean, any way you want to think of it, we want everything now. We're losing track with some things take time. Some things have to be grown. Some things are an investment. And while our culture has changed, God has not. And there are not a lot of things with Him necessarily that are instant gratification. A lot of things in the kingdom of God work the other way. He's huge on delayed gratification, by the way. It's a pretty big deal. But something as simple as, here's a law of the kingdom, seed time and harvest. There's not a lot of seed you can plant where you'll have the harvest tomorrow or even today. I've heard some things about bamboo, but I don't even think that was that fast. Are you with me? There's a lot of things where you sow the seed and now there's a season, not only just time, but in that season, you're tending and you're caring for and you're watering and pruning and keeping weeds away. There's investments on more than one level that get you to harvest. Even in the natural realm, I was thinking of financial investments. There are not a lot of investments that will turn you a, a quick return in very short order. Most of those take time. Some things are 10-year return or even 20-year return. Try explaining to a teenager that they need to park some money and get a 20-year return on their money. Have fun with that. They're, not gonna, they're thinking, 20 years? That's almost 40. That's old. I remember when 40 looked old. Today, 40 looks young. <laughs> I remember 40. That's behind me now. <laughs> if it's not behind you, praise God. But, oh, what, what did this young man was impatient. He wanted his money. He wanted it now. And you know how the story goes. Once he got his hands on that money, which it amazes me, the father did it. <laughs> we won't go in, we're not going to go down that path. But once he got his hands on that money, what happened? It's party time. He didn't turn around and do something new with the family business or go off and start his own business or invest that money somewhere wise. No, it's party time. And he began to 
he bought all the cool clothes, went out and bought the cool car, started hanging out in the cool clubs, got himself a whole new circle of friends. I say friends because it didn't turn out that way. In fact, that's, that can also be, I won't tug at this too hard, but that can also be a characteristic of youth is not recognizing who the real friends are. You look at this story, he had a bunch of friends, although I, I think it'd be more accurate to say he didn't have any friends. His money had friends. And when the money ran off, all the friends ran off. There wasn't even one that stuck around that stuck around? That stayed around? What was I trying to say? There wasn't even one left that would buy him so much as a Happy Meal. And now he's eating out of the pig trough. The, the friends were gone. So many times you don't know who your true friends are until you've gone through some hard times. And you've gone through some trials. And you see who stuck, stuck it through with you. And who walked through with you. And who was there for you. Sometimes it's a little eye-opening. But anyway... You find out who your real friends are. That's one of the wonderful parts of growing up. Anyway, uh, still on this example, verse 13, not many days after the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. This would be another characteristic. Sometimes when we're younger, we tend to be wasteful. And we'll be wasteful with things that otherwise we wouldn't. I know I'm painting with a broad brush, but sometimes the the youth get less wasteful when that money starts coming out of their own pocket and not mom and dad's. <laughs> sometimes that cures the wastefulness problem. Not always, but we need to, as we grow up, we stop being wasteful. We start being better stewards of the things that we have in our life, the resources we have. We start recognizing that we are stewards of God's things and the things that He's blessed us with. And we stop being wasteful with those things. Um, that's, that's something I've always loved about this church and about, about you is that as a church, we do try, when we do things, we try to do things with excellence because our Father is excellent. He, he's not a, a get-by, cheapskate kind of God. Contrary to what some people might believe. But at the same time, doing something with excellence does not necessarily equate to buying the most expensive thing we can get. So it, it's this thing. It's, it doesn't mean always the most expensive, but good stewardship does not always mean buying the cheapest, best deal I can find either. Where's the balance? What I like to teach is be led. The Holy Spirit will lead you to the right one for your situation, for what you need to do. Like, a great example is buying a car. Oh, what a good time to be led by the Holy Ghost, is to find the right car. He knows the history, he knows what's going on in that car, and he'll lead you to the right one. I, I was trying to think of a, of a church example, and this goes back a few years, but I've had my mind on a lot of, a lot of things worship lately. And I got to thinking about it. it was several years ago now that we converted our drums from electronic back to acoustic drums. Um, we did that for a number of reasons, but one of the biggest problems you have with acoustic drums is volume. They're loud. And that was why we went to electronic drums at one point, as they were so loud. But we wanted to get back. So you can see our solution then was we bought a booth. It was designed to contain the noise. We can stick our drummer in there and let them just play to their heart's content. And you and I could still carry on a conversation if we wanted to. It gives control of the volume back to the sound man. Okay. Why do I bring all that up? As we're going through the process of doing that, now what we need that we've never had before, we need microphones for the drums. That's never been a problem before. <laughs> never had a problem hearing them, but now we did because we got this, this drum cage. And so now we're shopping for microphones. And so all this was planned. All this was budgeted. Everything had been approved. We're getting ready to do it. And we had settled on, um, a pair of, or a grouping, uh, a set of Sennheiser drum microphones. And they were, they would qualify for excellent. They were very good microphones. They were going to give us, and they bragged, 
studio quality sound for your drum mics. And we're thinking, this is this is good. Um, it was approved. We had the money. We were ready to pull the trigger. You know what the problem was? Right down here on the inside. I, I, I didn't have a word from the Lord. He wasn't saying, no, those aren't the ones. Nothing like that. It was the inward witness. I just had a check. I did not have a piece that those were the right microphones. And I'm like, man, what's going on? Is it, Where my mind goes sometimes, is this just me afraid to let the money go? Sometimes I'm like, you know, do I really want to just... Cause, and I recognize, especially with the church, this isn't my money I'm playing with. You could say it's the offerings of the church. Um, I tend to look, of, look at it as, uh, this is God's money, and I need to be a good steward of God's money. And I'm getting this little check on the inside, so I'm one, I'm, I slowed things down. And I began to seek the Lord. Now, what's going on here? You know, I don't have a piece about this. And so we just, we didn't jump too quick. So I kept praying, I kept reading, I kept researching. And I didn't know this because I'd never been down this road before. We had picked out a studio quality microphone, but we are not a studio. We're not a recording studio. Not a lot of interest in recording music here. I mean, we could, but that's not our goal. And come to find out there's a whole other different classification of microphones that aren't made for the studio. They're made for live music. And I thought, oh, that's what we need. And it wasn't a lesser microphone necessarily. We still we didn't go with Sennheiser. We went with Shure. And if you're a musician, that's an industry standard company known for their microphones. We didn't go with a bad mic. Still an excellent mic, but better suited for our application. And guess what? 60% cheaper. So now I had a piece because what happened? I still did the excellent product, but I wasn't wasting money. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? The, the most expensive is not always the best option, but you want to get the right option. And for us, that was the right option. Does that make sense? Part of being a good steward is not being wasteful. So we want to be good stewards what the Lord blesses us with. Um, one small secondary reason we didn't want to go with a really expensive studio mic is we didn't have really expensive studio drums. <laughs> Wasn't necessary. <laughs> anyway. Okay, let's do one more quick example. I'm getting close here. Uh, Matthew chapter 19. I am going to read this whole passage. It's not long, but I want to kind of paint a picture. And we have another young man here. Matthew 19 verse 16. It says, Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good things shall I do that I may uh, have eternal life? And so he said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. Keep in mind, we are living under the old covenant. When this happened in the ministry of Jesus, we are still living under the old covenant. Jesus hadn't gone to the cross yet. Church isn't born yet. So we are living under the old covenant. So what does Jesus tell him? Exactly what the Bible says. You keep the commandments. That's absolutely right. Um, he says, which ones? Now, honestly, we know the Ten Commandments. In reality, there's over 600 of them. So that's a fair question. Okay, I'll give him that. But then Jesus says, well, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, all these things I have kept from my youth. What do I still lack? And I'll just throw in, he's right. Jesus did not correct him. Jesus did not say, no, you liar. Liar, liar, pants on fire. You haven't done this. No, no, no. Uh, Luke, Matthew doesn't say it. One of the other uh, gospels says Jesus looked at him and loved him. He was telling the truth. He really had worked hard as a young Jewish boy to keep the commandments. He says, all these things I've kept from my youth, what do I still lack? So Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, complete, mature, lacking nothing, he says, go sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. A couple things. First thing I'll say real quick, and we didn't hear from him again. I don't know what the rest of his story is, 
because he did not sell everything he had and follow Jesus. And he's not, to my knowledge, he doesn't appear later in the Gospels anywhere or the book of Acts. I don't know where he went. That was it. And I also say this real quick. Uh, this is not Jesus telling him, if you want to follow me and be a Christian, you got to be poor. There's no vow of poverty in here. Um, I don't even want to go down that path. That's not what this is saying. Um, I've heard pastors say that, and they're missing the point entirely. That's not what's going on here. And to say that is now putting you in contradiction with all of the Old Testament and everything this little Jewish boy had grown up believing. Um, they've never bought into that. And that's not what he's saying. What do we know about what he's saying here? Well, um, the main part of the moral of that story that I'll throw out real quick is Jesus put his thumb on the boy's problem. He said, you have a lot of money, but that money's got you. And you have more faith and trust in that money than you do me. And that was his problem. And that's a common problem. That's an easy one for, for men and women to do. And you suddenly get more money you have, the more trust you put in it. Now, the New Testament has several warnings to the rich. You know, be careful. That was his problem, but I think it was bigger than that. Um, what's a couple things we know about that kind of money? If he were to obey Jesus, liquidate everything he had, and give it to the poor, what's one thing that would do? Well, this connects to something Jesus taught. I believe it was in the Sermon on the Mount. But he said, when you give to the poor, you're laying up treasures in heaven where thieves can't steal, moths don't eat. You know, remember that passage? So number one thing, if he had given all that to the poor, he would have been transferring his wealth to his heavenly account where it would be with him for all of eternity. Because that's one thing Jesus was teaching in that passage. So there's one thing that would have happened. He wasn't giving it up, he's just moving it. He's taking it off of his earthly balance sheet, putting it on his heavenly balance sheet for eternity. That's that's one thing. But it doesn't stop there. What's the second thing we know? Um, he's now enacting the law of sowing and reaping. He has turned that money into seed, and he is putting it into the kingdom. And that is going to pay a harvest in his life. It's going to come back to him. In fact, on that thing specific, there's a proverb that says, when you give to the poor, uh, you're lending to God and he will repay. That money wasn't going to be gone forever. He was sowing it into the kingdom and that would have come back to him. That much we know. And it would have come back with increase because that's kind of what harvest does. He was trying to take him to a higher level of earthly finance and the kid wouldn't go. But I look at that and I see a third thing. Now, this is one of those times where I have to say, this is me thinking. I do not necessarily have scripture and verse to back up what I'm about to say. I am hypothesizing. This is me wondering. So I want to make that very clear. This is just one of those moments that it sure seems to me because what did Jesus look at him and say? The third part. Come, follow me. And I think he meant that literally. Because Jesus had people that followed him all over the place for the whole uh, extent of his earthly ministry. We often look at the inner 12. But scripture teaches there was an outer circle of disciples that followed him everywhere he went. Um, I've heard, we know there was at least 70 because at one point he sent 70 out. And it was probably more up around 100, I don't really know for sure, of disciples that followed him everywhere he went. Are you, are you with me? And so at some level he was telling him, liquidate and come follow me. Could it be, this is me hypothesizing, that Jesus kind of knew it's just going to be maybe a few months from now, I don't know where we're at in the timeline. I didn't look that up. Less than three years, because that was the earthly ministry. There is a day coming where there's going to be an opening for a disciple in my inner 12. Because Jesus would have known by the Holy Spirit, I have one that's going to betray me. And he's going to leave. And there's going to be an opening. Because you remember in the book of Acts, they said, there has to be 12. We need to replace him. 
And they went back to that outer circle and said, let's pick someone who's been with us from the beginning. What, the whole three years? And they had more than one to choose from. Could it be that Jesus was trying to handpick Judas's replacement? Not only that, who was Judas? The treasurer. He was Jesus' bookkeeper. The one who handled all the money for Jesus of Nazareth Evangelistic Association. He was the one that collected the offerings and paid whatever bills they had. And whenever they went to give money to the poor, it was Judas that went and gave money to the poor. Remember on the night that he did betray him and he walked out of the upper room and a half of the people at the table thought, oh, I guess he's going to give money to the poor somewhere. Why? Because that's what he does. He's the treasurer. Could it be Jesus saw this young Jewish boy who knew a lot of the old covenant, was keeping it, and knew how to handle money? Could it be that he was wanting to select him to be the next treasurer? Again, I don't know that. I'm hypothesizing. Hmm. But could it be that in his youth, he did not recognize the opportunity that was in front of him? That's not the first time. I'll give you another quick example, not of that, but of not recognizing the opportunity. In Luke 19, verse uh, 41, Jesus is, I want to say lamenting, but he his heart is broken over how Jerusalem treated him for three years. In uh, verse 41, now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, this is about Jerusalem, if you had known, even you especially in this, your day. The things that make for your peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another. He was crying over Jerusalem because they did not recognize the day they were in. And they did not recognize the opportunity that was in front of them. And they rejected the Messiah. And he wept over them. And that's exactly what happened. It was about 40 years later when the Roman army marched into Israel, I believe led by Titus and did that for everything Jesus said there. He brought the army to Jerusalem. He put an embankment around them on every side, trapping them inside, and proceeded to level the city, tore down the temple. Josephus writes that in that battle, not in Israel, in Jerusalem, Josephus writes that just over one million people died in Jerusalem when the Roman army marched in. Everything Jesus said there, Absolutely came to pass. And he really gave the implication, if you had known, if you had known, they didn't know. They were spiritually unaware of the day they were living in. And it cost them. Could I say it this way? They were asleep. To connect back to what we said earlier, they were asleep, spiritually unaware did not recognize what God was doing in the earth, did not know what time it was, and did not know their day of visitation was right in front of them, and they didn't see it. They didn't see it. So as I close this morning, I'll just say a couple things. You better warn them, I'm done. (laughs) Let it never be said about us that we slept through our entire Christian life, unaware of what God was doing. We must be aware of what time it is, of what's going on in the world around us, what God is up to right now, and what our part is, how we're to be connected to what He's doing. Hmm. Do you suppose, I'm, I'm still kind of on the rich young ruler, I'm kind of thinking of the 11 disciples. Do you suppose they had any regrets? You know, they left everything. They walked away from family businesses and jobs. In some cases, walked away, left family at home to go follow Jesus. Do you suppose they have any regrets? 
those 12 have their names written on 12 stones in the New Jerusalem. Be there for all of eternity. I don't know that my name's written on any stones. But how cool is that? Do you suppose they have any regrets? Do you suppose Peter's ever sitting around going, man, I wish I still had my fishing business. Wish I still had that boat. Love that boat. I, I'm thinking of, was it Matthew was the tax collector? Man, I wish I still had my tax business. Man, those were good times. Yeah, they had challenges in life. But I really seriously doubt they had any regrets. We need to be those who discern the value and the preciousness of the things of God and the value and the preciousness of the opportunities that He puts in front of us. And when He puts those opportunities in front of us, number one, recognize what it is and the value of it. And many times the opportunities of God will cost us something. Sometimes it just costs us the convenience. He asks us to do something at the most inconvenient time. Or maybe He'll ask us to give up something that we really had other plans for. And it's not always big things. Maybe it's little things. Sometimes it's big things. It always costs something. But can we have enough awareness to recognize the reward is always greater than the cost? And have enough spiritual awareness to recognize it's an opportunity and I better take advantage of it. That's the only way we'll look back on this life and not have regrets. We recognized what he was doing. We recognized what he wanted and we jumped on it. We were the anytime person that said, okay, God, I'm here. What do you want? Let's do it. Let's do it. Amen. Amen. I'm going to stop there. Even if it costs you everything in the natural, the reward is always greater. And you'll never regret. Never regret it. Amen. Stand to your feet.